Well, good morning, Vineyard of the Rockies. How's it going? It is good to be here with you, and it's an honor to be able to share part of my story with you. My name is Dave. I served as a pastor in the Denver metro area for about 10 years. I worked at two great churches, and then kind of a series of things happened in my life that put me on a different trajectory. I now spend all of my time, I run a nonprofit that helps churches work together to serve their local communities. And one of the things that happened to me is I was reading through the Bible as a pastor, and I came across John chapter 17. It's this incredible uh, chapter of the Bible. It's the last recorded prayer of Jesus while he's still a free person. And in this moment, he prays for himself and for what he's getting ready to go through. He prays for all of the disciples, and then he prays for all of us. So in this moment, um, this crucial moment of his life, he prays for every believer that was alive at that time and every believer to come. And what he prays for, of all the things he prays for, he prays for unity. And he says, because like when there's unity, people that don't know God get sucked towards him. And I remember sitting there and reading through that passage, that his prayer for oneness and thinking, what if this is true? What if like one of the best things we can do to help people come to know God is simply be unified with other believers? And I started to think about that passage day and night. I started to go to bed thinking about it, and I'd wake up thinking about it. I started to have breakfasts and lunches and coffees with other faith leaders in my city, and I started to realize that there was a lot of us that were stirred up by this idea of bringing the whole body together and thinking, like, what could we do together that we could never do alone? And so a group of 20-plus pastors and a few priests started to gather and to dream and to pray about these things. And we realized we didn't know our city very well. We realized that we couldn't answer this question like, what's the smartest thing you could do to serve our city? Have you ever thought about that for Fort Collins? Like if you were going to gather the entire body together in this city, what's the smartest thing that you would do and focus people on? And so because, and by the way, that's an indictment on you as a pastor when you don't know the answer to that question. And because we didn't know the answer to that question, we started to have these community conversations. So we would throw all of the faith leaders in a room. We would then invite in the city manager or the police chief. Nine years ago, we're sitting in a room with our mayor, and we asked our mayor, like, tell us your story. How did you end up here in our city? By the way, the really encouraging thing, you should be encouraged by this, the Fort Collins pastors through the Fort Collins Church Network, they do this a lot. They have these types of community conversations. So when we were having our conversation with our mayor, when we were asking him to, to kind of show us the city through your eyes, you know, and if you could wave a magic wand and change something, what would you change? He, he brought out this piece of paper that he had already written. If you want to get, like, the mayor to show up with a bunch of pastors, you have to tell him what you're going to do to him. Um, that's the only way to get him to, to show up in the room. So we had told him, so he comes prepared. He has this little piece of paper, and he says, you know, I want to live and lead in a city where there's no elderly shut-ins, where there's no single moms below the poverty line. There's no at-risk kids. There's, there's no financial debt. He's got, like, 11 things on this list, and he shares them all. They're all really good. And he gets done. He folds this piece of paper up. He puts it in his back pocket. And very much in passing, he says this. He says, you know, if you guys really want to have a huge impact on our city, you'd start some kind of a neighboring movement. And he just moves on. He's going to go on and start talking about something else. And we go, no, no, wait, go talk more about that. And he just starts to share with us the fact that, like, what they're learning at the city level is that the more people know each other right in their own apartment complex or in their own single-family home, you know, on their block, the more people know each other, the less need there is for all the systems that they're trying to create for people in need. And he talked to us about this elderly shut-in program that they were 
uh, raising money for. And he said, but what we realize is those people who are growing older and more isolated, if they're known by their literal neighbors, they get cared for out of relationship. He talked to us about a boys and girls club that they were thinking about raising money for. And he said, if that kid who doesn't have a father figure in their life, if, if he's invited into the fabric of a healthy family, of a neighbor, a lot of those things that we're trying to do are already taken care of. And he shared with us this quote. He said, you know, the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just become a community of people who are great neighbors. And he said this beautiful line. He said, what we're learning at the city is that relationships always trump programs. Now, I want you to just put yourself in this room, and your mayor is talking like that. Now, imagine you make your living as a pastor helping people to orient their lives around the teachings of Jesus, around this entire book. Which, by the way, this book, if you boil it all down to one thing, according to Jesus, the most important commandment is love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. So now imagine that's what you do for a living. And imagine what it feels like when God uses your mayor to tell you that the smartest thing you can do for your city is the Bible. Would you like to know what that feels like? It doesn't feel good. Okay? It was, it was like this crazy moment. Uh, Jay Pathak, who is a vineyard pastor down the Denver metro area, was one of the people in the room. We prayed for our mayor. He leaves, and Jay just kind of looks at her. He's like, uh, does everyone feel as embarrassed as I do about what just happened? And we did. It was like this horribly embarrassing, convicting moment. And I'll never forget driving home back into my cul-de-sac that day. I'm driving back into the place where I live. I've got a hundred thoughts going through my head. The two that I remember most are this. I remember thinking to myself, Jesus is smart. You'd think as a pastor, I'd have that thought a lot, right? But I remember going, oh my goodness, is it possible that when Jesus gets asked to boil the text down to one thing, is it possible that he's given us a very simple strategic plan that if every believer did it, it would change the world overnight. And then I had this second thought. I realized I wasn't doing it. As a pastor, I was living a really busy life. I was serving on the boards of three different nonprofits. I was going up and trying to help people figure out their life with their spouse and with their kids. And I was setting up chairs for the next outreach event and trying to prepare for Sundays. And I had filled up my life to a place where I didn't have the capacity or the desire to be intentional with the people who God had put right around me. And I remember walking into my house that day, my wife, Lauren, who's ahead of me on like most things, and she was ahead of me on the neighboring thing. And I told her what had happened in that meeting, and she just looked at me and said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I didn't want to have a lot of accountability. And so I just said, okay, I think I'm going to hang out in the front yard more and see what God does and then I was just, I was like, for a year. I just made that up at the end. I was like, for a year, I'm just going to do that. And I'm going to tell you something, just doing that, just being in my front yard more and just having eyes to say, all right, God, what are you up to? That one-year experiment has lasted over nine years now, and it's totally messed up my whole life. It's introduced me to like all of these weird people that I would never, ever be in relationship with. And it's been beautiful. And it's people that I don't have a lot in common with, some of them. You know, some of them, are in, and we've gotten through that awkward phase where we've, we've filled in the voids in each other's lives. And they've become some of the most significant relationships that I have. 
and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later, but let me tell you about what happened to this group of pastors. So we get done. We say, hey, let's get back together in two months. Let's pray about what God did there. Let's talk in two months. I had been going around for years before that conversation with the mayor, and I've been annoying people at the city with this, like, hey, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you change question? And people um, often would say, oh, go talk to Vicki Ryer. Vicki Ryer was our assistant city manager. And Vicki would basically tell me the same thing every time. She goes, you know what you should do with all those people that show up to all those churches? Next time it snows, why don't you get them to shovel their neighbor's driveway? And I remember thinking when she would tell me that, I was like, no, I can't be it. Like, I wanted something, like, sexy. I was, like, imagining, like, a headline, like, the, the church eradicates homelessness or something like that. And, and she was telling me, do something small for the people that live closest to you. And so what I later learned is that Vicky had kind of poisoned all the people in the city around this neighboring stuff. And so when the mayor said the neighboring thing, I was just like, oh my goodness, Vicky's been trying to tell us this this whole time. And so we invite Vicky to come to our next meeting two months later. She comes in and she just has all these practical reasons why neighboring matters. She talks about the fact that in neighborhoods where people know the first names of their neighbors, the crime rate is 80% less. Talks about the fact that when there's a natural disaster or a crisis, that oftentimes your neighbors are your first responders because the systems get overwhelmed. She quoted uh, this Malcolm Gladwell study that people who know their neighbors live significantly longer than people that don't. And we're like, oh, we're right. We're taking notes. We're like, that's good. That's good. And, and we're also thinking, and Jesus said to do this. And then at the end of the time, there's this little interaction I have between Vicky and one of the pastors that cements that we're going, that we have to do something. And we're just doing Q&A. She wasn't trying to be mean at all. The pastor had asked a question, and she just, she said this. She said, hey, um, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. And we're like, we heard it, and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa that can't be. And we they started to argue with her about her per perception. And then we stopped, and we realized, no, she's right. Like, our city leaders, when they look out across the face of our city, they don't see a difference in the way Christians and not, there's not a drastic, noticeable difference in the way Christians and non-Christians treat their actual neighbors. And that one thought from her stunned us. It like put us on our heels. And we started to think like, wow, that actually is true. And by the way, I've shared her quote now in rooms with over 500 leaders from over 500 different cities. I've never had a city manager or mayor or anybody go, oh, Dave, Guess what? In our city, the Christians are the best neighbors. It's not even close. And, like, that, that should mess with us. That, that should have us kind of, like, really starting to kind of take a step back and trying to reconcile. So Jesus says, if you only do one thing, love God with everything you have and love your neighbors yourself. But yet, in our culture, Christians aren't known for being the best neighbors on their block or in their apartment complex. Like, when I started to, like, think about that, I started to get, like, angry and irritated. I don't know if this has probably never happened to you. If, like, you're watching the news and you see something and you start to get mad. No, you, that does happen. Uh, so, like, I started to get irritated as I was about this. But then I started to ask a different question that changed my mood. I started to ask this question, like, I, instead of, like, how is it possible that Christians aren't known as the best neighbors? And Jesus says this. I started to ask this question. I'm like, I wonder how you end up as a pastor who's not engaged in his own neighborhood. Because that was my story. And I started to read through, you know, pieces of the Bible that I had read hundreds of times that I had taught multiple sermons on, and they started to take on a new light. 
And I'm going to read one of them here. Kind of, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 10. Otherwise, we'll have it up on the screen. But um, what I've come to realize as I've shared my story with others is that many of us have become inoculated to the great commandment. It's one of those things that we hear over and over again. But it's easy to lose touch with the true meaning. And I think, um, I think the Bible has something interesting to say about our tendency to do this. So we're going to pick it up in Luke 10, verse 25. And if you've been around church, you've probably heard this story before. I want to encourage you to kind of like look at it through a new lens. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? This happens a few times throughout the Gospels. Somebody comes to Jesus, asks him a question. Jesus realizes something bigger is going on here. And he gets the person asking the question to answer their own question. And so that's what happens here. How do you read it, Jesus says. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Just think about how big that is. Do that right there, and you will truly live. Then this next verse, it was like one of those things that just came screaming off the page at me. Do you ever, like, see yourself in the story? You ever, like, reading through the text, you're like, oh, no. That's me. Okay, I had, I had that moment right here with this next verse. It says this. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus boils the entire text down to love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This guy already knew the answer. He repeats the perfect answer to Jesus. Jesus affirms him, and then his first thought is, how do I get out of this? But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, like, Jesus, neighbor, what, what does that really mean? It's fascinating how he tries to get out of it. His first thought, like, I wonder if I can just, like, define the word neighbor so that it most easily fits into what I'm already up to. This was a really bad moment for me. I'm reading through this, and I'm like, oh, I think I just figured out how to become a pastor who's not engaged in his own neighborhood. I just follow this guy's playbook. You just define the word neighbor so that it most easily fits into what you're already up to. And what I've realized as, as I've kind of just studied this and been around this is that that's what a lot of us have done. We just define the word neighbor as we see fit. So it doesn't inconvenience us too much. And then we end up turning this idea of like loving your neighbor into a metaphor. And what happened to me is I ended up with this like really powerful metaphoric love for my metaphoric neighbor. And metaphorically, I was just killing it. But in real life, there was people who were like right outside my front door. And I didn't even know their names. And it's so fascinating what Jesus does here in the story. He looks at him and goes, oh, we're going to play the define the neighbor game. And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He just blows up. The, the definition of neighbor on this guy. But he's, he's assuming that the person is, is, you know, being a neighbor to the people of their same culture and custom. And the story of the Good Samaritan, he says, listen, everybody's your neighbor. That's actually not what it says. That's how I live for most of my life. Everybody's my What the story of the Good Samaritan says is when you care for the person in front of you, no matter who it is, no matter who's doing the caring, that that is an act of loving your neighbor. There's a big difference between everybody's my neighbor and when you care for the person in front of you, that's an act of loving your neighbor. For most of my life, I just thought the story of the Good Samaritan is like everybody's my neighbor. And so I, I made it so big and so nebulous 
that I, I never really thought, like, well, maybe Jesus meant the people, like, my actual neighbor, like, that person counts too. And I, I think a lot of us do this. We, we understand this idea of, every, you know, of loving the person in front of you, but we make it so big that we kind of get, we, we find a loophole where Jesus wasn't talking about our actual neighbors. And I want to be really clear about something. Some of you are thinking, hey, like, in Jesus' economy, like, what I do at work, those relationships, that's loving your neighbor. And if you're thinking that, I want you to know this, you're 100% right. What we do across the globe when we're there, that is loving our neighbor. I don't want to, you know, I want to lift that up and validate that. The relationships that you have with the people on your kids, you know, the parents on your kids' sports team, all of that is loving your neighbor. I want to lift that up. But here's the deal. All of that doesn't sprinkle magic fairy dust over our actual neighbors, and all of a sudden Jesus isn't talking about them. And what my friends and I have learned is this, is that there, there's great power in not starting in graduate school. We don't need, I didn't need advanced placement neighboring when all this came crashing down on me. I needed to go back to kindergarten. I needed to draw a circle around the place where God had put me and then begin to work out from there. And I'm just going to tell you, like, it's a great way to live. It's a great way to live. And so what happened in our little group of pastors and in our community is this, is what we started to, like, just ask people to take the next small step. Take the next small step. Now, my friend Jay was here, I don't know, five or six years ago, and he did, he, like, shared with you this little block map. Actually, how many, raise your hand if you remember the tic-tac-toe board, okay? Quarter of the room or so. All right, so for you, we're going to do a quiz right now. It's a pop quiz. For the rest of everybody else in the room, we're going to do a test, okay? And this little test, this little thing we're getting ready to do here was the, the key to everything that happened in my city. And in my city, the number of block parties started to increase dramatically. The number of calls to code enforcement started to drop off because people stopped picking up the phone and calling the city every time there was a problem, and they actually started walking across the street. And everything that happened, this was the secret sauce. This is 100 times better than the book that Jay and I wrote. Okay, I'm going to do this right here with you right now. Okay, so I want you to imagine that's your neighborhood right there, or your apartment complex, or your townhome, or your ranch. And then I want you to imagine that you walk outside your front door. Just imagine the eight most logical units. You don't have to be legalistic about it and pretend like it's a person. Like, just think of the eight most logical units to you right there. And now I want you to think about this. How many of their names, how many of the names of the people that live in those eight units can you write down right now? Or can you rattle off right now? Go ahead and start thinking about that. Of all those people that live next to you, how many of their names do you know? I'll give you a second to do that. Real, don't, annoying lady does not count as a name. Okay, like real people's names. How many of those names can you actually do? I like, you're killing it. You're like actually writing these down. Um, how many of you right now you think you could do the, both adults' names if two adults are there in all eight of those names? Raise your hand. That's actually high. That's like 10% of the room. How many of you right now, if I asked you to come up here, you think you could list off both adults' names if there's two adults in five or more of those units? Go ahead and raise your hand. I'm going to be generous, 30% of the room. I, I want to share something with you that's fairly disorienting. Um, we've handed out about 380,000 of these magnets that you're going to get today when you walk out of here. So I've, I've had this conversation a lot over the last 10 years. 
I've never been in a room of Christians where more than half of the room can write down more than half of their neighbors' names. By the way, when I first did this, I could only do two, I could only do both adults in two of these boxes. I think it's, a, this is why this is really important, okay? In order to love someone, it's helpful to know their first name, right? I mean, can we all agree on that? So what I want to do with you, I don't, like, what I want, I'm not, we're not going to talk about this crazy, like, loving your neighbor stuff, okay? What we're going to do today is we're going to set the bar so low that you can't crawl underneath it, Um Okay, my whole life, everybody told me good leaders set the bar high. That might be true with like a small group of people. But what we learned in our city, you want to start a movement? Just set the bar so low that people can't call anything. So oh, we're not going to ask you to love your neighbor. That's crazy Jesus stuff. Okay, we're, we're just going to say this. Would you be willing to learn and retain and use their names? And I probably should confess this. It's a Trojan horse to get you to do all kinds of other stuff. Because what happened to me, what I learned in my life, is that once you, like, so much of momentum is just getting going. And so what happened to me is this. My, we didn't have a cool refrigerator magnet. My wife just, like, put it up there and drew a tic-tac-toe board on a napkin. And it was just sitting on our fridge. And all this stuff was going on in my life. And I kept looking at these blank squares. And I could only do two of them. My wife could do way more. Um, but she's like really mean, and so she wouldn't write them up there. And so she made me have this. She made me have this series of mildly awkward conversations with my neighbor. And I remember one of them. My neighbor was sitting out there. He's mowing his lawn. He's just sitting there mowing his lawn. And all this stuff was going on in my life. And I was out there in the front. I was out in my front patio. And I looked over. I'm like, oh, he's one of the guys that I've met like you know three times, and I don't know his name. And so I remember thinking like, okay, I got to go right now. And I didn't even take a step. And I just had this thought. I'm like, ah. Oh, He's mowing his lawn. I can't go, like, right now. That's going to be super weird. And I go, I'll just make up something to do in my front yard, and he'll get done. And I thought, no, that's more weird. And I actually had this thought. I thought, I, I'm just going to walk back inside, and I bet. And right then, I was like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm trying to get out of it. So I, I walked across the street, kind of had my head down. I remember looking at the corner. He's kind of looking at me. He's like, what are you doing? This isn't an emergency. And I walked up to him, and he let off the, the lawnmower. I said, hey, man, how are you? And my other neighbor was bro. I kept them totally separate, and I felt like that was a really big deal for me. And I said, this is really embarrassing. I know that we've lived next to each other for two years now. I know I've met you at least three times. I forgot your name. And I said, I'm Dave. And he said, hey, I'm Matt. My wife, Jan, we talked for like 20 seconds, and then I went back home, and I did something very, very important. I wrote it down, and I put it in a place where I could see it. And it, after about six weeks, I had this whole thing filled in. By the way, all you need to, to do to be a good neighbor, the, the main quality you need is the willingness to lean into mildly awkward conversations. Okay? Not to be a mildly awkward person, to lean into mildly awkward conversations. And so I just had a series of those. And all of a sudden, this thing was filled in, and God did something to me. All of a sudden, like, these people went from, like, oh, that guy drives the blue truck and has the two kids to, like, a real person with a real name and a real story. And once the momentum had started with some of my neighbors, not all of them, once it had started, it, was, it went from, hey, man, to, hey, Matt, to, hey, Matt, did you see the end of that game? To, hey, Matt, I just have this thing in, in my garage. I just need to move it like 10 feet. Could you help me? 
to, hey, like, you guys are going to be watching the game. We're going to be watching the game. Just come over. Let's just watch it together, too. Hey, um, your son's car is out there all the time now. Did, did he move back in? How's that going? To sitting across a dining room table, sharing with this couple, like, the things that we love, who we are, what has shaped us into, like, here are the things that have, like, shaped them and the things that they love. This thing that I had been dreaming about as a pastor, you know, setting up the chairs for the outreach, it was all sitting right outside my front door. And all I had to do was start to lean in. And that's what I want to encourage this church to think about doing. Would you be willing, would you be willing to just say, you know what, what, what I had to realize is this, this is a hard realization. When I could only write out two of the names, fill in two of these boxes, what it meant was that most of my neighbors weren't important enough for me to retain their names. To just remember, like, I didn't have enough value for the relationship for me to remember their name. That, that was a bad moment for me. It's a bad moment for all of us. And this isn't like a shame deal. This is just, I'm just sharing my own story with you. Like, and I was a pastor. I was a pastor. And I just want to tell you this. If you're just willing to, like, confront this and to think, well, maybe Jesus meant my actual neighbors too. And maybe I can just start taking some small steps towards them. What I want to promise you is the kingdom will break out all over the place. Now, some of my neighbors don't want to be my friend. I know, it's real shocking to you guys. It's like, some of my neighbors don't want to be my friend. I go, I meet them, I learn their name, and they're so busy that it's almost impossible to connect with them. And, and they come home, and in the morning, the garage door goes up, they go out, they do a bunch of stuff for work, then they come back, grab their kids, then they go out, and they do a bunch of activities, and they grab fast food on the way home, then their garage door goes up, car goes in, garage door goes down, they detox from that, then they wake up and do it again the next day. And I have a lot of grace for my neighbors like that because I think that's how many of my neighbors experienced me for much of my life. But some of my neighbors are dying for something more. Some of my neighbors, all they have is the dysfunctional family of origin stuff that we all have and the surfacey work things. And if we can just become the type of people that'll lean just a little bit towards them, if we just become the type of people that will like, think they're important enough to remember their name, and, and as we get to know them, Ask decent questions like, hey, why does your yard look so much better than mine? Okay, what you're, that's a small thing. There's a dignity exchange going there. I'm not going to go to the store for 20 minutes. I'm actually going to borrow something and then replace it down the line. If we can actually like look at people and go, hey, like your kids are like 10 years older than mine. And, you, you know, and after you're getting to know them, and go, what do you wish you would have known when your kids were my age? How did you end up in the construction? Like, tell me a little bit about your story. What were you doing before you did this? If you will be shocked, if we can be kind, become the kind of people that just do that, you'll be shocked at how people lean back towards you. People in our world are dying for depth. They're tired of just running around like crazy and just living in the shallow surface. And, and so when the kingdom people start to do that, the kingdom breaks out. I've seen it over and over and over again. And I love, by the way, I love what's happening here at this church. Jeff and his staff, by the way, this isn't just like some sermon or some sermon series. They bleed this stuff. This is part of the DNA of this church. And, and the table is set for this congregation in particular and for the city. So uh, Darren and Wade, your mayor and city manager who are going to be here next week, 
Um, I've had the privilege of getting to know them over a number of years and to see them work in their city. Like, what's happening here in the city of Fort Collins government is phenomenal. There's more people dedicated towards, like, developing neighborhoods as far as full-time staff in Fort Collins than any other place in the state. When I meet with other people from other city workers, I just go, go to Fort Collins, hang out with them. They're doing it the best. They're giving away free grant. Any of you want to, like, throw a block party, there's a little micro-grant system here in this city. The government will pay you to follow Jesus. To throw block parties. Yeah, it's a really cool thing. And so, and by the way, they're going to be here next week sharing some of their story and their heart with you. I encourage you to be here. But, like, what the soil here in this church and in this place is incredible. And so I have a lot of faith that a group of people here can start taking the next small step and can really end up making a big difference. There's a passage that was really helpful for me um, that's found in Acts. Uh, helped, it helped shift some things for me in my own life. All throughout the Old and New Testament, there's this thick theology of place where you just, it's, it's all there. And a lot of us have lost it because technology and we're so transient. We've lost a theology of place. But check out what Paul says here in Acts. And he's sitting, by the way, he's sitting in Athens above this marketplace. And earlier in the day, he had been walking around the city and he saw all these idols. He's like, man, these people have a ton of pagan idols. And he even sees one idol that says, to the unknown God. Now, I love Paul's posture here too, because he could have like, like seen all these idols and just thought, we need to throw all these in a fire. I'm going to like do some demonstration against culture. But what he does is so brilliant. He actually uses their culture to bridge them towards God. He looks at this whole group of people and he goes, hey, listen, I can see you're religious because you even have an idol to the unknown God. And then he says, I'm going to tell you about the God you don't yet know. And he gives this incredible sermon about the character and nature of God. And in this, like, sermon found in Acts 17, he says this. He says, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God determined the time set for them in the exact place where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I'm going to summarize this text for you. God has placed us in our specific neighborhoods or apartment complexes or ranches or wherever we are. He has placed us there for a reason. It's not, you don't live where you live because you love the curb appeal or the school district or you always want to have four bedrooms up or because you can't afford the place that you really want to live in. You live where you live in this moment. You're going to drive back to a residence because God has placed you there and he's placed the people around you there. And when I got this, it it changed the way I drive into my neighborhood and out of my neighborhood. I started to realize there's something sacred happening right around me. God's up to something, and then we have to choose, do we want to participate? Do we want to begin to lean in? And when you start doing the numbers on this, it gets really fun. You start thinking about, all right, here's a church, and there's about 300 households that call this church home. And what would happen if those 300 households just said, you know what, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to just take the next small step. I'm going to do the magnet thing and then learn some names and see what God does. 300 households, that means you could touch over 2,400 households. And if there's, let's just say, we'll guess a little three people in each one of those households, that means this one church can touch over 7,200 human lives just by saying, I'm going to go back to the basics. I'm just going to go back to the basics. 
And so oftentimes it's easy to come in here on a Sunday and to hear something and to be inspired and then to somehow just drift away from Like we always leave with great intentions, right? And and what what I've come to love about this is it's really concrete. We're giving you today, you're gonna, everybody's going to walk out of here with one of these. They're on the information table. They're on the, the exit out here. You're all going to walk away from here today. Here's a scorecard for you. It's, about, it's also your own little parish. Okay? But here's like a really concrete scorecard of like, how well are we doing at like closing the gap between our intentions and what we're actually up to? And I just want like, because it's so, like, I'm not doing any kind of rocket science up here today. I'm doing like, you know, the Bible for dummies, if that exists. Like, this is so simple, and that's also the beauty of it. It's so simple and so concrete that you get to make a decision. All right, am I willing to do that? And, and there's no shame in any of this. Like, I mean, I hope you hear that from my own story as, as a pastor who wasn't doing this for a long time. But I just want to tell you what lays on the other side is, is real kingdom activity. And I'm going to be praying for you and for your church as you continue to lean into this down the road. In a number of months, Jeff's going to get up here and he's going to do a pop quiz with everybody. And my hope is that when he asks you, hey, who can, who can write down a neighbor's name that you couldn't three months ago? My hope is that like this whole room is going to be full of people that are raising their hand and go, yeah, I actually can do that. And if you do do that, the stories that will come in, well, how God will work and take from one thing to the next to the next uh, will just blow your mind. So I love that this church ends every week with a little time to reflect on something. I'm going to share with you a really dangerous prayer that continues to haunt me personally. I, I continue to do this, you know, periodically, and I'm amazed at how God always puts something on my heart when I, when I pray this simple prayer, and it goes like this, God, what's the next small step that you want me to take with one of my neighbors? What's the next small step that you want me to take with one of my neighbors? And when I pray this prayer, I, I just can't believe how often, like, it's like, he's like, oh, that couple that you said that you were going to, like, have over for, like, the last six months, I think you should actually have them over. That person who you haven't seen, who you kind of connected with a little bit a year ago, but you haven't seen them for a long time, why don't you just go actually knock on their door and see how they're doing? Like, so I just want to invite you to, to just pray this simple, simple prayer, and I'll just ask you to bow our heads. We'll reflect on this for a minute or so, and then um, then we'll continue on with some worships.